There was a great Tibetan yogi meditator from the, uh, the uh, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, named Shabkar, who was uh, deeply, deeply dedicated to his practice. And there's a, a line from his writing that I like a lot. It goes, let your life and practice be one. There's another statement that many of us as teachers often make near the beginning of retreats when we're inviting people to look deeply. We often say, no part left out. In other words, every part of oneself is welcome to be uh, examined, to be seen. Uh, We don't just look at some parts of our lives. So with those two comments in mind, uh, I want this morning to go where some angels uh, fear to tread, which is to talk about Dharma practice and the election. (laughs) I was debating about whether to do this, and I thought, I thought it could be helpful. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, when, when one or two words come to mind for you about the election, it could be any, any aspect, not just the national election, but when, if one or two words come related to your own experience, uh, what comes to mind? Stress. Stress. Disappointment. Disappointment. Anxiety. Anxiety. What? Disgusting. Disgusting. If, was it futility? Was that one? Yeah. What? Helpless? Hopeless. Huh? Hope. Okay. Hope. Okay. It's so easy to go to the negative, so I'm trying to find Okay. Got it. Hope, which very easily can be heard as hope, hopeless. Okay. Uh, one or two more? Insanity? Yeah. Hmm. Integrity. What? I, I, integrity. Integrity. Yeah. Wake up call. Wake up call. Right, so a lot of uh, strong feelings. Uh, I would say the majority of them were relating to difficult experiences, right? And I'll come back to that. There's a lot there. There's a lot there for people, and... I've seen uh, several articles in the last week or two about uh, therapists noting that in their clients they'd often seen a lot of examples of stress, of difficulties, and I think there was actually I think, an article in the uh, Washington Post just a little while ago giving therapist recommendations <laughs> for the election season. <laughs> And it's, it's challenging. It's challenging for us in a lot of ways, particularly as practitioners. Some of us may call ourselves Buddhist practitioners or Dharma practitioners, but it's confusing in a lot of different ways and can be difficult, uh, even independently of the specifics of this election. I think that there, there are questions about how this all relates to our, relates to our practice. Uh, I remember being in uh, Thailand. As many of you know, I've been very interested in what's sometimes called socially engaged Buddhism, which is the connection of inner work with with service and social change work. And I was at meetings in Thailand of the group called the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. I remember going to a a monastery, Monastery of uh, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, Achan Mahabua, and um, being there for a few weeks and having conversations <coughs> with the a Western monk, British, uh, Chan Panawato, who was the longest tenured monk in Thailand. And he said, Well, social work is good, but the real work is essentially, the language he used was uprooting the defilements or uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion. And you can't really do that out in the world very well. 
you need the uh, focus, concentration, and support of a monastery. Interesting perspective, right? And, uh, and so there are, at least there are certain perspectives or, or voices that um, the central focus should really be on inner work. We find, that, we find that traditionally in a number of different ways. In the Asian context uh, uh, of India and later of other countries, uh, it was sometimes said that relating to the political realm, which at that time was talked about in terms of the um, connection with, the, with royalty or kings and queens, it was said that danger from kings is a greater danger than from disease and wild animals. <laughs> right? And stay away from that. You know, stay, away from, stay away from that realm. On the other hand, we have views that we find from uh, both Asian and Western teachers more in the 20th and 21st century. We find people like Thich Nhat Hanh saying mindfulness must be engaged. He says... We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And you find, you find some support for that even in the teachings of the Buddha, who did sometimes talk about developing the conditions for social harmony, sometimes talked about inequality as a basis for social disharmony, and spoke about the importance of the ethical guidelines as guidelines for society. This was later developed by the great Buddhist king Ashoka a few hundred years after the Buddha who had edicts um, really actually you know 22-2300 years ago outlawing capital punishment and protecting animals right? and a little bit advanced of where we are from, from certain perspectives right? Um, so you have, you have some of that. You also have, in, uh, actually in both Theravada and Mahayana tradition, the figure of the Bodhisattva, who is dedicated to helping others, particularly to reach liberation, but helping in other ways as well. And so it's, um, so it's, an, it's an interesting question. What do we do? What are our guidelines? What do we, you know, the resources that we have uh, are primarily resources for inner practice. So how do we work with uh, really even approaching something like the election or understanding it or responding or what's our, what's our role um, and so forth? Um, again, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, said a religious community should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. That last statement is a challenge, right? How do you, how do, you do that? And we might think, you know, some of us might think of be attracted in some ways to what we might call progressives, but then you see, gosh, don't they argue a lot? And aren't they so self-righteous and polarizing, right? So people may have ambivalence towards uh, people who call themselves spokespersons for social justice. And you may find that conflict is not just with others, but actually even internal, right? Internal uh, with yourself. Um, but it's really, how do, we, how do we bring a practice which emphasizes the development of wisdom, of compassion, of love, of awareness? How do we bring that out into the world, in particular in relationship to an election? How do we bring this cultivation of the big heart and the clear mind? You know, how, is that, how is that relevant? What do we do? You know, and I was thinking there, there are some wonderful questions, a little bit different perspective, but that were asked uh, by um, W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, um, the, the great African-American uh, activist and intellectual who um, asked uh, four questions, which were very fundamental, very powerful questions, which is, they're almost, this is all almost like what, what the Zen teachers would call a koan. How do, we, how do we relate our practice to what's going on in the world? 
Um, and Du Bois said this, how does integrity face oppression? What does honesty do in the face of deception and lies? What does decency do in the face of insult? How does virtue meet brute force? These are like koans. These are, these are very important questions and almost something that uh, doesn't lead necessarily to quick answers, but that are more like, like in the Zen tradition, koans. They're difficult questions that lead you on a certain path of inquiry. You know? how, does, how does integrity work with a world which often doesn't seem to have so much integrity? And so forth. So how do we do that? How do we, you know, one approach obviously is just to withdraw. Right? And that's, that can be useful for periods of time, but is that what we want? So a lot of questions, right? A lot of questions, and how do we approach that? So I'm going to talk about four themes that help us approach the um, being with the election. And the first two are familiar. They're what we've explored some in the last few weeks. That is, practice with our views, our opinions, our positions as an important area of practice. The first, so practicing with views, positions, opinions, number one. Number two, cultivating empathy and compassion. Very crucial. Uh, Number three is working with difficult emotions and difficult thoughts towards developing equanimity. That's the third. And the fourth is, actually, no, I have five, actually. Wow. It grew. (laughs) Uh, The fourth is seeing the world through the eyes of our practice, through the eyes of dharma. How do we see the world, not through the categories or the perspectives we're necessarily given in the news or the media, but how do we actually see through the eyes of our practice? Not easy. Not easy to do. And the last is action. How do we act? You know, what are the what are the different forms of action? <clears throat> so, the first perspective we've looked at quite a bit. Uh, <clears throat> those of us who were here uh, in some of the sessions that we had, particularly I think in uh, September, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I think particularly in September, part of October, where we looked at the working with uh, views, opinions, positions, uh, particularly when differences come up as a key part of practice. And the counsel there was first really to use one's mindfulness to track what our positions and views are, and particularly where there's a strong view or opinion. Right? What we're going to be looking for is particularly to see how we can have skillful views that increasingly are without reactivity and without attachment that we can use for on the basis of motivation that's guided more by the heart and by wisdom. And so naturally, uh, when we look to our views, we find a whole range of views. And you could think of range of political views, uh, social views, we find all sorts of views. So here, the guidance is, take that as a form of practice. You could do that, again, you could do that in the next week. Watch what happens, particularly if you're discussing things and someone else has a different view. Do you find attachment? Do you find wanting to win? Do you find negating the other people's view, person's view? Do you find reactivity? And this can go back to some of what we've looked at in past weeks about the distinction between being judgmental and being discerning. Again, we we don't want to toss out our views, our perspectives, but we definitely want to look where is there stuff connected with them? Where is their reactivity? Where is their attachment? What happens when we're with different views? Do we uh, become judgmental towards those with different views? You know, and, and I talked about that practice of just tracking views. I talked about the practice of taking a difference of views 
as a starting point for inquiry. Very crucial practice. And again, I, we may self-select and not have people with different views, maybe particularly about the presidential election. I can't say that I've had extended uh, uh, discussions with people who uh, have a different view than I do on the presidential candidates. Not much, not too much. Um, but um, you know, we're in a little bit of a bubble here. <laughs> you know, but uh, you can have imaginary discussions. Or I know the the foreman, who was the main person in charge of the building project here at Spirit Rock, um, had a pickup truck and had extensive stickers for uh, the main male candidate. <laughs> along with bumper stickers suggesting prison for the other candidate and so forth, you know. And, um, but can we, can, we, can we look into uh, when we have different views? And of course, it's not just for the election, but for, for many things, and use that as a starting point for inquiry, saying, why am I so reactive here if I, if I am? Uh, is there something I could learn from this other person? You know, what's the perspective of the person? Is there something of value in the other perspective, even if I'm critical of some aspects of it? So this is a whole area of practice and seems fundamental as we move on, you know, related to the election, you know, to work with views. A second area is also one that we've looked at the last two weeks, and that is the cultivation of empathy and also compassion. And I have to say that uh, after a talk last week on empathy, I had a dream the night after I gave the talk on empathy, and I dreamed of being Donald Trump's chief of staff. (laughs) (laughs) And we got along very harmoniously. I mean, I I thought it was a positive dream. in the dream, uh, my memory of the dream is that I didn't do anything that went against my values. Uh, but I, I don't remember doing anything in the dream. I just remember being chief of staff and relating to him. <laughs> right, so, but in any case, uh, that's interesting, right, to have that, have that dream after focusing on empathy so much. And, and again, for those of you who haven't been at those talks, uh, Empathy is an innate quality of essentially being able to tune into uh, particularly another person's experience, you know, in, and particularly in three dimensions. One is at the level of emotion. Another is at the level of the perspective and the thinking of the person. And then there's also, at times, a kind of a somatically-based kind of empathy, which... Uh, uh, you know, and the research shows that they're actually, when people act in a certain way, our mirror neurons light up, you know, as if reflecting that action almost at a bodily level. And again, at, a, at the level of the brain, this, uh, there is this way that we tend, when we don't have our empathy shut down, which is sometimes not that much of the time, <laughs> that we don't have it shut down. But when we don't have it shut down, <laughs> empathy is a very natural quality. And you know, people have reflected from an evolutionary point of view that it's crucial for the social bonding that makes human life possible. And despite that being a natural quality, there are many ways in which empathy gets shut down by social conditioning, by stress, by fear, uh, and so forth. And um, uh, the social conditioning, very, very strong, you know, to, uh, for... Much of the history of humanity, there was a more narrow circle of humans who received empathy, and outside of that circle, there wasn't empathy. There was the in-group and the out-group, so to speak. And I think one of the hallmarks of our time is the understanding that it's possible to bring empathy to eventually to all beings, which is completely in line with our heart practices that we do here of metta and compassion, joy, equanimity practice. Um, can we uh, reserve a question for, for later if you had a question? And, okay, unless it's, it's a question of clarification, I could take it, but of a question of, that would involve some discussion, maybe, maybe not. Is it a question of clarification? Well, sort of. 
Uh, well, then maybe let's reserve it for later. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. Uh, is there a question I could answer in one sentence? No. Probably not. Okay. Um, but let's remember it uh, for, for later. And so um, empathy is this amazing quality. And I, I, talked about, uh, I talked about ways to practice empathy. And what I didn't mention also is that it's, it's crucial also to develop the capacity of empathy towards oneself, which is sometimes left out, that one can sometimes give empathy to oneself. And I gave a few ways to practice empathy in the last few weeks. And I think the main one that I offered was uh, the practice of tuning in deliberately to another person or possibly oneself at the level of emotions and the level of what seems to matter for the person. Can I tune in to this person? It could be someone with different views. That ha- and can I tune in to what the emotions are and what matters? And there could be a certain amount of interpretation, but we've done that practice in the last two times, and it it's, can be a regular empathy practice, you know? And it's, uh, again, it tends to bring us to uh, cultivate empathy beyond what often is a narrow circle. You know, I mentioned that I've sometimes seen, I've seen a few times, home movies of the uh, German concentration camp uh, leaders or uh, commandants, we would say. And in the home movies, there seemed to be a lot of empathy for their children. But of course, it ended outside the house, right? And that is partly the history of a lot of humanity, that, that it can, empathy can be there uh, often in the narrow circle. And that a lot of, again, a lot of the positive, I think, social evolution has been to extend empathy to a wider and wider field. So it's not just my in-group, but brought increasingly to all persons, right? Um, and again, we can see in the context of the election that that empathic move, which some people have said is central to our future development as a species, actually having empathy be more at the center of our curriculum for, for students and for citizens, that you know, there's a book by uh, uh, Jeremy Rifkin in which he maintained that empathy and the cultivation of it is at the center of actually being able to meet some of our main social issues, particularly the systemic issues. You could think of issues like climate disruption, racism, immigration, economic equality, that the development of empathy has profound impact for how we relate to those issues. And we can also see, in terms of the election, how often empathy has been lacking. Right? We see it especially with Mr. Trump, you know, who seems to uh, not at times be able to have empathy towards what must be like 80% of the U.S. population. Right? And go down a long list of people, um, women and Muslims, African Americans, uh, the handicapped, and so forth, where there have been major failures of empathy. Right? And we have... Also, I've mentioned their failures of empathy by the other candidate who often might seem to be really looking down on the followers of her main opponent, right? With comments like the basket of deplorables, right? I was, I was contemplating, again, somewhere between waking reality and dream, a possible, maybe this is a Saturday Night Live skit uh, that could happen, but I was imagining an empathic conversation between Mr. Trump and Ms. Clinton that would go something like this. And um, Donald Trump would say, you know, I'm, I'm really consent how difficult it is for you to receive, you know, uh, all my unresolved male conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> and how difficult this has been for you and how it really must be very painful and you probably don't feel respected in the way you'd like to be. And uh, um, I'd really like to work on this. (laughs) (laughs) 
Or, you know, you could imagine uh, Hillary Clinton saying something like, uh, you know, I really can sense your frustration with uh, maybe a sense that I'm looking down on you or that there's condescension or I think I'm better than you and your followers. And, and I can understand how some of my words and some of my actions really might have been heard that way. And I want to work on that. Wouldn't it be nice if we had leaders who actually inspired us? Isn't that what leaders are supposed to do? Right, so um, anyway, I, if anyone is in contact with Saturday Night Live, there's no copyright on that idea. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but I think just saying that, you can see how there are failures of empathy, right? And concretely, we can uh, see if we do that ourselves, if we maybe don't have empathy towards people who are on the other side. And again, I've mentioned uh, that there's, I think there's a sense in which uh, empathy can really, and compassion can really feel the pain. Whatever the ideas, whatever the strategies of a person you might disagree with, whatever the views, there can be, again, we can actually uh, tune in and sense what are the emotions and what seems to matter for the person. Distinguishing between what matters in a deep way and what the strategies are. Another strategy might be to uh, build a wall, but what matters maybe is a sense of security or a sense of uh, uh, economic uh, opportunity, right? That's kind of behind some of that. And, and empathy would tune into that. Can we do that? Can we use empathy where we have different views? Can you watch the news and go to empathy? Admittedly, certain kinds of empathy are advanced practice, as we saw last time, right? So don't start with the most difficult empathy practice. <laughs> but start with build up your empathy muscle. But I think that empathy and compassion are crucial to bring out, really related to the comment earlier about the healing, you know, and to watch tendencies towards polarization. Can we take responsibility for the pain and suffering in the world? You know, partly uh, I think that Buddhist perspectives, particularly those of the ethical precepts, really suggest some responsibility to attend to the state of things. You know, when you look, uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh interprets the first ethical precept as do not kill, do not let others kill. You know, and you find even in the uh, tradition, uh, statements from the Buddha, that there's often a way of understanding the ethical precepts that are not totally about internal or individual behavior. You know, in the very ancient text of the Buddha, he says, uh, uh, don't cause others to kill, nor approve of others. That's social, interpersonal, right? And so uh, I, I think and I, uh, that if we actually take the ethical precept seriously, that I, I, I undertake the precept not to kill. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh says, don't let others kill. There's something, again, similar to that. That has, that's not easy. I think it's also a koan. How do you take the ethical precepts seriously and bring them to the social world? You know, not easy. But it's a koan. It can really keep us uh, questioning and asking, what's my responsibility to be with the suffering of the world? And again, it may not be, this is kind of getting a little bit ahead of myself in terms of action, it may not be to take on everything, but what's my small part of the puzzle? What do I feel called to do on in a small way, maybe local, that can help. You know? So I'll come back to that point. So the third area, the so first is working with our views. The second, I think, is cultivating empathy and compassion. And the third perspective is that of uh, working with difficult emotions, working with what comes up, and trying as best we can not to be stuck in some of what we mentioned, you know, some of what we mentioned at the beginning. There can be stress or frustration, uh, particularly the difficult emotions. How do we work with those? You know, large percentage of the population have fear or anger. You know, in some of my um, recent trips, the last month or so, to particularly uh, um, like going for medical appointments and just having uh, random meetings with African American women, particularly, and we we would talk about the election. And they went right away to uh, make America great again 
I talked with two people, two African-American women. They went right away to make America great again means bring us back to slavery. I'm not saying that's correct, but that was in their minds, right? That was, that was uh, what was there. There, is, there. there are difficult emotions there. You know, in my uh, one-on-one work with people in the last month, uh, it's up, come up quite a number of times with women that they've been very shaken by some of what's happened in the last few weeks, right? With the, you know, some of what's happened and, and uh, just to really, uh, that it's, it's shaken them personally, you know, that, and uh, how do you work with that? How, do you, how does one work with that personally and how do, how, do you, how do you frame that? It's there for a lot of people, so how do we, how do we, how do we work with fear or anger or uh, disillusionment or frustration. Um, and I think without working with them, we often get paralyzed or we withdraw, right? And this is true in so many things, and maybe we've seen, maybe we've seen that at different times. I know I've seen that in, at times being an activist. I've seen that when I didn't deal with my own emotions, I would get paralyzed. And then when I was able to work with them, I was freed to respond. It's very hard to respond when those strong emotions have taken us over. You know, at best, we withdraw and don't act. At worst, we're reactive. You know, at worst, we're reactive and not skillful. So the working with challenging emotions is crucial, and there are ways of doing that both individually and in groups. You know, we know through our mindfulness practice a number of different ways to work with uh, difficult emotions. We can use the method that we've popularized a lot at Spirit Rock and elsewhere, the method called RAIN. How many of you remember the RAIN method for working with emotions and thoughts, which is recognize, uh, accept that it's present, investigate, and do so with uh, non-identification or not taking it personally. In other words, really look into, be with the difficult emotions. We can only do that if we're kind of balanced. If we're not balanced to use our mindfulness, we need to come back to balance in some way. Sometimes this could be working with a heart practice like metta or compassion or sometimes forgiveness. You know, sometimes empathy. Empathy can be, in my own experience, when there have been difficulties interpersonally or with other, other um, people who I, who I uh, know more at a distance, empathy practice can be tremendously healing, work through reactivity, and lead to more of a sense of connection and less polarization, right? And so if we're in that place where we're stuck some, we have to typically do what is necessary to get unstuck before we try to be mindful, you know? If, if the difficult experiences are at a certain level where they kind of take us over. So that's, that's first. And then we can be mindful. We can say, okay, here's this happening. There's anger there. Oh. I'm totally caught up in the anger from this discussion I had with someone who's in favor of the other candidate. Can I be with that anger and work with it? Feel what the thoughts are, what the emotions are, feel the reactivity. Can I inquire? Can I feel what it's like in the body? Can I notice it? Can I do so and notice where I'm reactive or identified? And so that's very, very fundamental practice for these times to kind of come back to stability. Um, and there are also ways of working interpersonally and collectively, which are less accessible, but are really crucial. Um, I think particularly of the work of Joanna Macy, who has a lot of group practices, which particularly are designed to work with the pain that we feel in relation to the world. And they're very, very skillful. I think there are videos that you can see. You can certainly read her work or, or study with her. And these kind of practices, there might be you know, one might work and be with a group where you have a space where you can bring forth the difficult emotion and, and let, it, you know, let it be there and be witnessed by other people in a circle who, you know, in one, in one ritual, there's room for that and people would say, I hear you. you know? And I, I've done those kind of practices a lot and sometimes taught them. And I remember particularly doing them after the Iraq, uh, original Iraq, or not the original, but the, I guess the 2003 Iraq invasion, and uh, working with people 
Because at those times, people get paralyzed with emotions. And actually, working in this group setting helped to work through the emotions can be in ways that actually doing it individually didn't always do. So we have, we have those kinds of tools. I found it freed me up to respond more skillfully. And I think large uh, segments of the population are essentially caught in difficult emotions, aren't we? It's probably true of a lot of the population. And so we need to find ways to... That's part of the healing work. You can't really heal unless you get at the material, right? So how do you do that? Not easy. You know, sometimes I've thought that my training in that area might be a major, if not the major, contribution I can make to have more opportunities to do that work. Other cultures used to have group cultural rituals to deal with difficult emotions. Many cultures had that. We don't have that now, do we? We often just go for escapism and so forth. So there's a whole area there. And this can help uh, develop a sense of equanimity, more of a sense of balance, which from that we can respond. So the, the fourth area, I'll be brief here, is how do we actually see phenomena occurring through the eyes of our practice, rather than simply using the categories of the media? How do we actually see the world? And this is a big project. How do we see the world uh, in terms of our own intention to develop wisdom and compassion? How do we do that? We don't exactly have a lot of guidelines from 2,500 years ago because the, the direction was more inner. There's some comments about the world, but not that many. So I think this is, in many ways, a contemporary project. How do we do that? How do we do that? Some people find, I find resources sometimes in looking at things from an evolutionary perspective. You know, it can be very helpful to see that we can have a sense of the evolution, for example, towards empathy being more and more universal. You can interpret history in that way. That's helpful. And to see that that movement is a difficult one goes through ups and downs, but can have some sense of, okay, here there are some very powerful movements towards greater empathy. And, in fact, that you can see signs, even that, for example, um, you know, there, there are some negatives with Mr. Trump, but I think there are also positives, which we may not see. For example, at the Republican convention, Trump spoke approvingly of rights for LGBT people. And he was met by applause. That may be, that anti-gay lack of empathy may be gone with the Republican Party. I don't think it has room to come back, even if they're local pockets. That's positive, right? That's, that can give some hope, right? You can see, so that's where we, when we get polarized, we don't see these things. You know, and they're, they're, if you look carefully, there actually are, there, there are a lot of negatives, but there are also some positive things like that. And you can see, you know, there's not much empathy towards immigrants, but there's more empathy towards LGBT people, right? And so one can see some evolutionary developments that are occurring, and that that can be uh, quite positive. Um, Partly seeing, using the Dharma perspective, is to see, okay, there is greed, hatred, and delusion. Just to see clearly when that manifests, and when that manifests... Uh, collectively, you know, uh, we can see, for example, uh, you know that we still, you know, for me, it's helpful to use this to see that we still have a lot of unresolved suffering in this in our society. You know, we have the unresolved suffering of um, African Americans, particularly, and of the whole Native American genocide. We haven't really faced that. We have a lot of unresolved suffering that we haven't dealt with, which I think is important for moving on. You know, so having a more evolutionary perspective and being attuned, I think, as practitioners to where is their suffering? Where is their unresolved suffering? How might we bring that out as part of moving forward? That can be helpful. And to see where there's, to see where there's delusion, where we're not seeing things clearly, to see that... Uh, None of the debates brought up the question of climate disruption, for example. This is, uh, this is delusion. This is 
this is, you know, maybe in five, ten years we'll see it almost as criminal. I think so. You know? um, and so how do we see and how do we see all this and still keep uh, some degree of hope and balance? That could be the subject of a whole talk, right? <laughs> and, but I think we can do that. You know, how do we see, you know, we are on the brink of having the first women president in the United States, it seems. From an evolutionary point of view, that seems incredibly positive, right? There's not so much um, appreciation of that, is there? Not like with Mr. Obama, you know. And, but something like that is about to happen, right? And there's, not surprisingly, tremendous resistance, isn't there? Tremendous resistance manifesting in all sorts of ways. You know, first woman president, and look at what she, uh, candidate, uh, major one, look what she puts up with in the uh, debates, right? Right? Like, uh, deep lack of respect. It's quite, there's a lot there. Um, and we can also, I think, look at, you know, look at where there are dangers, dangers of the present time, you know, dangers of the breakdown of democracy. I think those are real dangers. You know, uh, challenging the election, challenging the press, and so forth. Uh, uh, scapegoating and so forth. You know, I think most of us know the, those points. There, there are dangers there. And, but there's also, I think, from an evolutionary perspective, also a lot of positive things going on. That's hope. That's, you know, from the point of view of moving towards greater awakening as a culture as well as as individuals. And so the last, last point, and then we'll get to some discussion, is about action. Uh, Angela Zarian had a statement, action alleviates anxiety. <laughs> Right? And that actually acting in some way can, is, is one way to work through uh, difficult emotions. So what does, what does action mean here? Um, I think it's very important to know that action, I think, is very much about seeing where you're called to help contribute to healing, to help contribute to uh, evolution. could be uh, on many, many levels. I think that elections actually are sort of the tip of the iceberg, and that most change probably occurs more at the level of culture. And then it manifests at the level of elections. So changes that we make at the level of our neighborhoods, at the level of our schools, at the level of our institutions, I think are a major way to respond. Right? What would it be like if you brought empathy more into the education of young people? Or if you brought empathy into your workplace? Right? I think over time, that might lead to a more empathic uh, politics or more uh, that some of what's happened, for example, in debates would be unthinkable in 10 years or 20 years. One scenario, right? And so I think it's that really see where you're called in a more social or collective way. And it could be many, many things. You, don't, you definitely, we don't have to do everything and we don't, and we don't have to operate at that level of larger systems. Right. I, I like that uh, comment by Howard Thurman that I sometimes give. Do you remember that? Howard Thurman, the great African-American activist and uh, writer, mystic, theologian, who was asked near the end of his life by a young man, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And Howard Thurman was an activist. He had been setting up uh, inter the first interracial church in the Bay Area. And again, you might have expected him to say, well, we really need people in this project or that project. But his answer was, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so can we ask ourselves where we come alive? You know, where we come alive. And where we come alive in some way that could benefit the larger society. I think that's what's called for. And when we act like that and then make the connections between the different levels, I think the, our inner perspective changes. And I would invite that. See what, you, what draws you. Again, it doesn't have to be at the level of the larger systems. It can be bringing mindfulness into the schools or, again, maybe into the workplace in some way or having community gardens or teaching yoga or uh, uh, bringing uh, mediation and a uh, skillful way of working with conflicts into 
uh, your community, right? These are you know, based on empathy and understanding. I think this is very much a response because what we're looking for is really a large-scale cultural shift that will manifest at a certain point at the level of politics, at the level of elections, right? It really is an expression of what's there, right? And if we keep on working on these uh, cultural shifts, I think that they will manifest at the right time, as they already have in certain ways, right? In at the level of the election. So that can be more of a counsel to look for the long haul, right? Act locally, act in the moment, but prepare for the long haul. This is a long haul. I think we can look at the election and know it's, it better be a long haul. <laughs> you know, hopefully we have a long haul. Right? And so that's, that's a perspective to have. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll end with two, two comments. One of them was from Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, you know, in the context of his own work in Vietnam, where on a certain level, you know, he lost. He said he looks at success more in terms of whether awareness, mindfulness, love, compassion have been advanced. That's the core criteria for successful action, even if you don't always get your goal. And so I think that's a way to have that equanimity for the long haul. And then I'll end with uh, words from the second century. This is from one of the great uh, rabbis of the second century. Who, who The other ones are probably on the tips of your tongue. But this is, this is Rabbi Torfon, one of them. <laughs> and he said... It is not upon you to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. So really see where you're called, but ask that question. And then practice with views, practice with empathy and compassion. Try to see the world through your, the lens of your deeper values. Work with your difficult emotions that when they come up and find a way to act even in very small ways. And I think these are, for me, some of the guidelines for, for staying grounded and sane in what can be a very uh, difficult uh, time. And even though the election just has, what, two more weeks, less than two weeks, <clears throat> I think the issues will be with us for a while. <laughs> So I want to thank you for your attention and for your own practice. Please. Yeah. We'll we'll use the mic for the the Q&A. I compliment you on your talk. It was uh, very enlightening, very broad, covered lots of areas. Yeah, thank you. I've always viewed myself as an empathetic person. Yeah. Part of, uh, I've had sort of blind empathy. Mm. And what you brought up for me was the fact that uh, blind empathy may not be the best thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we use empathy without an adverb or an adjective to describe it or, or discern mm-hmm. what's good empathy and empathy where we get co-opted. Yeah, and um, what what brings to mind is the other night I was watching uh, Trials of Nuremberg. Yeah, and uh, you know, the test comes up. You know, at what point are you not empathetic, mm-hmm. and at what point uh, you fearful that you're you yourself are being co-opted, and what red flag comes up for you mm-hmm. to know that this is not a place to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think you're really pointing to um, a lot of of the uh, challenges of empathy. You know, know, for one thing, uh, it's very helpful to know what are the most difficult situations for empathy to be there. 
you know, when we have our, we looked at some of this last week, you know, the most challenging situations for empathy where you may be polarized, you may be reactive, someone may have done something that you find really unacceptable or, or difficult. So I think, first of all, it's really good to know that there are differing degrees of difficulty in terms of empathy. Uh, and to know where one is with that is very, I think, very important, and to build the empathy where it's easier. That, that's one point. And then the, I think the, the main point <clears throat> that you're bringing up is with some of these situations which are kind of at the extreme, where people have done, you know, in the case of the Nuremberg trials, uh, virtually unimaginably horrible acts, right? Um, and so two things there. One is to know that to try to bring empathy there is, uh, first of all, uh, going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible, if we haven't developed that muscle earlier. Um, that being said, I think what you're also pointing to is that um, empathy, I think empathy, uh, I'll just say, um, empathy, I think, is always suitable, but we want to be clear that empathy doesn't mean at all agreeing with or accepting that this was okay. That, uh, and, you know, and with the people you mentioned, this, is, this would be extreme empathy or ex, you know, uh, off the charts. Uh, but that, um, again, uh, empathy doesn't mean uh, saying that something was okay, but it's trying to, in some way, see what's there for the person. And um, again, with certain very extreme actions, that's really hard or almost impossible. Um, but it's, but, um, you know, or maybe, maybe to take an example, maybe, again, maybe to uh, take an example in the political campaign, uh, can one have empathy with someone who is uttering, let's say, racist comments, right? Well, the empathy doesn't say that that's okay. And one of the, one of the distinctions that I find helpful, I think we got into this some last time as well, in the discussion period, is that um, that one can be kind of empathic for the level of pain of the person, but totally disagree with the strategy or the perspective, and that can still be empathy. You know, one can be empath, like as Martin Luther King was empathic with the the racists who were against him. Right, he could see. He could feel their pain and maybe their confusion, and there was a kind of empathy there. Uh, again, it doesn't mean accepting the positions at all. It doesn't mean one can have empathy and totally act against uh, the person you're having empathy towards. Uh, does that make some sense? It wasn't satisfying. Yeah, well, why don't you do one short comeback and see, see uh, if we can get, get further. Well, I think uh, uh, when one is empathetic, uh, it, it does follow through uh, with some sort of action or non-action. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is a equal and opposite or an opposite response. There, you can't deny the energetic response, whether it be positive or negative. And I think at a, at a certain point, you have to discern uh, what what your action is going to be and how empathetic and understanding. Yeah, I mean, the Buddha said, you know, understanding is the, is the booby prize. Uh, and understanding is the booby prize? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure what you're... I think it's the big prize. What? Understanding in for the Buddha is the big prize, not the booby prize. No, I think it's the booby prize. Maybe we... I think we may be having a difference of definition of terms here. Well, anyhow, about under, maybe uh, yeah. about empathy as well. Uh, uh, um, um, yeah, but I suspect that there's some difference of definitions here, because I, th- I don't think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of language and yeah, a lot of semantics, I think. But yeah, I, the, I, I, I mean, we cannot sit on the sideline at a certain point and say, uh, you know, this is okay. Well, and, and, and did you hear and, that? Even, what, even for good the way I'm framing empathy is that it, it's uh, not at all about uh, it's independent. 
of how you act or don't act. And so ideally, empathy particularly, I mean, we're, again, we're talking about your examples were very, very extreme. But think of maybe... It's doctors. not very extreme. I mean, no, the Nazis that's are extreme. The, 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 the example well, the of the Nazis, here, that's extreme. I mean, we came very close or had come very close to, to nominating a guy mm-hmm. who could be a pretty bad guy in this country. So sometimes yeah. when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to see it as a society. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I can see that for some people... Um, if empathy isn't possible, then they need to act, right? But I'm defining empathy as the tuning in. Again, I think if you think of the example of Dr. King, there was very strong action. I would say he was empathic towards people on the other side. And that, that would be my example. That empathy needs to go hand in hand with direct action. It's not about being on the sidelines. Or, so I think we may have a difference of definitions. Uh, that you may think of empathy as involving approval or not going hand-in-hand with strong action against even the person you're being empathic towards. So I I suspect there's some underlying differences there. Maybe we could come back after after we finish. Yeah. Um, We have a few other... Um. Still with empathy here. Um, failures of empathy in a family unit yeah. often leads to dysfunctional family dynamics. And under those circumstances, it seems that the biological need to um, for child rearing under those circumstances or, or to interact mm-hmm. with the family sort of leads to challenges for mm-hmm. one's personal interactions. Can you enlighten that any? To, to, to be empathic leads to challenges? Uh, no, no, the lack, lack of empathy, can, yeah. the, the, the dysfunctional family dynamics That's right, yeah. are very challenging to, That's to work right. with, and yet we're driven to resolve those, whereas perhaps within the political realm yeah. where there isn't that biological connection, yeah. or at least for many of us who don't feel it, necessarily the same kind of yeah. way that we do it towards our family, towards others outside the family unit. That's right, but I think even in families, uh, <clears throat> without some guidance about compassion, empathy, ways of working with conflicts, ways of working with difficulties, I think many families are stuck as well. And, and so I think, that, I think that kind of training is really, really crucial. And, yeah, and... Yeah, I'm thinking that uh, I just had one further thought. Your, your name again, Liz? Joel. That Joel. That Joel's coming. My, my sense is that you know where what I was hearing was really a certain amount of distress about certain situations, and it really being really important that empathy not be misused in a way that stands in the way of very strong action. Does that, does that make some sense? Yeah. And that's really crucial, and I, I, totally, I totally agree with that. That, uh, yeah, I think we're really talking to... Empathy can be misused, and it can be, uh, you know, oh, I'll be empathic, but I'm not going to stand up, right? That could, that's, that's, I would say it's a misuse and a danger, but uh, I think it's also possible to uh, work... Again, think of Dr. King as an example. I think that's, that points to the, <clears throat> the mature integration of uh, empathy and action. Yeah. <clears throat> Please. Well, thank you. Thank you for the question. So I guess my recent uh, challenges have been around trying to uh, oh, try to get to forgiveness for people who have had an impact in my life. Yeah. And some of that comes around, I guess... In that, I'm saying that moving with the idea that the antagonist or perhaps our enemy can be our greatest spiritual teacher. And in this situation, you know, when we talk about skillful, we're implying, what, a structure. Missing possibly the point that some of the people that are running for politics are skillfully triggering reaction and that it could conceivably be a healing thing if we could stretch our empathy into that arena 
rather than moving back into ourselves and our own practice to try mm -hmm. to deal with something that is um, that is our bit, but reflected in the outside world. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, yeah, I think there's there's a, there's a lot there. Um, the um, let's see the uh, quality. Let's see. Remind me of your first thought. It was, it was your first thought was about oh, just the, the enemy or the antagonist. That, that's right. Yeah, that uh, <clears throat> at a certain level of practice, we become interested in where we lose it. When we're beginning practice, we're trying to not lose it as much, <laughs> and we want to. Often, it actually can be skillful not to pay to so much attention to where we lose it and stabilize our minds and develop some tools, some resources. At a certain point, we get interested in where we lose it, where we're reactive, and, and where we can contribute. And we, there's a, a line which I like a lot from the 8th century Shanti Deva uh, text, Dalai Lama's favorite book, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Bodhisattva is the being who helps self and other. And in that, in that text, there's a line that says, uh, I shall be grateful to have an enemy, for my enemy assists me in my conduct of awakening. Right? And so at a certain point, we can actually be interested in differences, in having opponents, and take them as a starting point for learning. You know, essentially with the idea that where we get stuck or reactive is potentially a place of learning and growth. When we have a, typically when we have a certain basis. When we don't have that basis, it can be too much. Right? We, we need to know the difference. Uh, but then at a certain point, we can uh, have that attitude and actually try to uh, take this as interesting. You know? At a certain point in practice, we get interested in where we lose it. And it actually uh, can lead to actually very rapidly accelerated growth. You know, just the same thing could be on a social level when a society is willing to admit where it's made mistakes and lose it, it can actually uh, progress tremendously like, like I think Germany did maybe starting in the 70s or 80s, right? And a lot of, a lot of uh, development there that we haven't gone through the parallel, for example, in relationship to slavery you know? um, kind of a equivalent of a truth and reconciliation commission something like that and so, yeah, to actually bring that perspective to people who are doing things which maybe, again, may come out of some pain, but are actually skillfully, but somewhat without wisdom, doing things which lead to uh, uh, polarization, worsening, fear, etc., right? And so how to intervene there, that's hard, right? But I think that's, that's what you're pointing to, right? to actually take that as, a, some, as one of one's projects. No, not, not easy. Okay, um, we're, at, we're at time. Everyone ready to uh, um, go out there a little more skillful? <laughs> a little more guidance? Uh, it's challenging because ultimately we're not, we're not really talking in a narrow way about the election. We're talking about how we bring our practice into that part of our lives, which we could call our social lives, you know, which includes also our communities, you know, because essentially everything interpenetrates, right? Uh, our minds reflect what we've internalized from the society, and the society, in a way, is the externalization of the collective mind, right? And so uh, it's kind of all there, you know? It's like the... Uh, uh, um, on the cover of the 9x yellow pages, it says, if it's out there, it's in here. <laughs> and so I think maybe again, maybe let me finish by inviting just to see what, what's your own intention coming out of the morning, maybe for your own response on whatever level. So just take a moment with that. And maybe something else was sparked that doesn't have anything to do with anything we talked about that's important for you. That could be what you attend to as well.
And we finish by remembering that we practice, we develop these qualities of clarity and empathy, compassion, wisdom, skillful action. We do this for ourselves, we do this for those in our lives, and we do it ultimately for all beings. Knowing that to the extent that we are part of all beings, we also very much do it for ourselves. Thank you. And uh, thanks for thanks for this inquiry. And uh, let me know what you discover. Thank you.